All right, Proverbs chapter 29 begins by telling us here, He who is often rebuked and hardens his neck will suddenly be destroyed and that without remedy. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read the second half of verse 1 there in chapter 29, being suddenly destroyed, that sounds pretty intense, but when you consider the latter part of that and that without remedy, meaning that there is no resolve, there is no cure afterwards, there's no fix afterwards. In other words, it's describing something somewhat catastrophic in the consequences, the permanency of it, the lasting ruin of what has happened in such a way, the idea there, something without remedy means something that you can't fix. It's done. It's ruined. It's something that's kind of somewhat fallen apart, and there is no cure, time, or any medicine, or anything isn't going to remedy the situation. Now, uh, in light of that, I think it's pretty wise that we would consider the warning there, because I don't want to end up there. (laughs) I don't think any one of us uh, in good judgment wants to find ourselves experiencing something like that as far as consequential outcome as the result of us in some way being stubborn and going against the Lord. And again, ultimately, that's what it is, because right, the Bible tells us, woe to him who strives against his maker, uh, that there's nothing ever to be gained and there is everything to be lost when we strive against God as our maker. And so here, the caution he gives to us is being aware of and careful of the foolishness, he says, of becoming someone, look what he says, who's not just rebuked once and kind of stiffens his neck, and isn't, but he says someone who is often rebuked, meaning that there's been more than one time that the caution has come, more than one occasion. He describes the foolishness of consistently, stubbornly refusing to obey God's voice, to obey God's word, to resist doing what's right. In other words, it's not an issue of, oh, I just didn't know that was something wrong to do, or I wasn't aware that I was crossing a line, or that I was... That's not the idea here. Being often rebuked indicates here that God by His Spirit, and and God has many means, does He not? He'll, He'll challenge us through His Word if we're reading the Word of God. He'll confront us through the teaching of His Word, like what we're doing here tonight, and Then we'll, the next day in the morning, turn on the Christian radio, and then through another Bible teaching program, God will again fire another, you know, shot across our bow, and and then we'll be having a conversation with a Christian friend, and they'll sometimes, perhaps even, maybe they're not even aware of what's going on in our lives, and they'll just start talking about something out loud, and all of a sudden, we're falling under conviction, and they don't even realize they're being used by the Lord to speak prophetically into our lives. And then maybe it escalates to the point where perhaps the, the rebuke becomes a little more uh, direct in the sense that maybe then it does become aware that we're doing something that's clearly wrong or someone becomes uh, acquainted with our uh, backsliding condition or that we're beginning to transgress in some area spiritual or morally. And so then they in love, faith for the wounds of a friend, they actually kind of, they directly confront us. And then they may be more directly as a brother or sister in Christ. They rebuke us. Hey, what are you doing? That is not, and they caution us and they challenge us and kind of 
try and call us out, or maybe it's a pastoral figure giving us counsel in our life. But again, the idea here is consistently, he says often, being rebuked, which means to be confronted, cautioned, but pridefully stiffening our neck, hardening our neck, and that's the idea there of, of just kind of being stubborn and rebellious against correction, but just persisting in error anyway. And he says, please know, be wise, be aware, God says, when a person kind of falls into that condition, that path will eventually lead to a self-destructive outcome. That stubborn resistance, that continual pursuit against reason and truth and light when someone's cautioned and warned and challenged and rebuked, he says, they will end up being ultimately, if they stay on that course, suddenly destroyed. In other words, again, God, doesn't he? he I mean, he mercifully gives time periods of grace and patience. I mean, it is amazing when you realize, you know, in, in the Old Testament where, you know, God was waiting and waiting and waiting to judge the pagan nations. And he says that, you know, the, the, the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its fulfillment. And that was centuries. God gave nations centuries, not a century, centuries to turn, to repent, to ch until eventually the judgment of God falls, and eventually the calamity comes. And in a sense, a nation or a person can bring a curse, in a sense, upon themselves, whereby they're destroyed in such a way that there is no remedy, that the severity of the, the consequence and the judgment brought upon oneself is literally a, a self-destructive, ruinous outcome, he says, that can't be fixed, something that can't even be remedied. So wise people, God's cautioning us here, will yield to wise and loving rebuke. That when rebuke comes into our life, that we realize, thank goodness God loves me enough that he's finding a way to rebuke me, whether through his word, whether through his Holy Spirit, just challenging my heart, whether it's through God's Spirit using the voice of a person in my life that loves me enough to rebuke me and to challenge me, that we yield to that in turn before we create a catastrophic outcome for ourselves and find ourselves with that kind of sudden calamity where everything comes collapsing in and there's no remedy any longer. And again, that can happen to a life of an individual. That can happen to a nation of people. And so again, just really wise that we pay attention and don't persist in that stubborn rebellion that we can all be guilty of. Verse two, he goes on to say, and when the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. But when a wicked man rules, the people groan. Now, I know we're not in the midst of an election season, but you should probably circle that, highlight that. And when it comes time to vote again, there's a real helpful way without even watching the debates or knowing where people stand on this you know, economic platform or should we be in war in this country. There's one real clear thing right there that God says to us of the different experiences that people will have depending upon if their leader is good or bad, if their leader is righteous or wicked. God says the outcome of that will be the experience of the people under that leadership, whether it's civil rulership or honestly, for that matter, any form of rulership, you know, business leadership, church leadership, 
to a degree, you might even say family leadership. Again, when someone is in a place where they're providing rulership, oversight, direction, they have authority, that, that there's a big difference depending upon their condition and the experiences of those under their leadership. And so he says here very clearly, those who lead right when the righteous are in authority, when someone, the idea is they're leading right, they're exercising their authority for good influence, they're doing right things. He says, the people rejoice. It brings joyful satisfaction to those under the leadership. It brings a wife that's joyful and delighting and enjoying the experience of a husband using his authority, leading in a good way. It brings an enjoyable experience for the kids and the family. It brings an enjoyable experience for the church under a good, healthy leader and under a society as well. If there's a civil leader who is someone with morality and carries about judgments in the sense of thinking about what pleases God, what's righteous and moral, people rejoice. There's a celebration. But he says the exact opposite. When a wicked man is ruling, those who lead wrong, who abuse their authority, who have no moral bearings, if you would, so they lead in corrupt ways, they lead the people under their authority down corrupt and filthy paths, he says the end result of that is it brings what? Misery. Is people groan, and they just, they're just complete misery. So, you know, very important to take into consideration. You know, I've heard people say before on different occasions, you know, throughout my Christian walk, uh, you know, even in regards to, you know, not just the idea of we think of that in a civil sense of, you know, you know, selecting our leaders wisely and, and, and taking into consideration that we've, we've all known this, right? Any of us who live through any different administrations of presidents and, uh, you know, uh, governors and so forth, we know that is just a reality. It's, it's just, it's a reality. But the same thing, look, uh, applies spiritually too. A lot of times I've heard over the years, you know, Christians talk about, you know, choosing a church or trying to find a church, you know, I, my personal recommendation would be, and I've heard numerous people in my life say this before, and, I, and it's not original from me, I concur with the idea, is maybe rather than selecting a church, people should do a better job selecting their pastor. Because some people, oh, this is a really great church. Man, there's so much happening, and wow, this is a really great church, and it's got really great people, and it may. <laughs> but what's the leader like? Because that's what's going to end up having the greatest bearing upon whether you're rejoicing and, and finding yourself edified and built up or whether you're finding yourself groaning because you're going, man, I love all these people here. <laughs> it's just the leaders killing me, <laughs> right? So I think there's just real wisdom in paying attention. Who do we submit ourselves to in leadership? If you're a single lady, pay attention. You can sign up for a life of rejoicing and delight and enjoyment by selecting your husband or you can sign up for a life of misery where you groan your whole married life because you select a husband uh, that may not be uh, godly. And so, again, pay attention. Who we select is allowing to have leadership over us. It, it really does have a huge bearing, and the wise person remembers that. Verse 3, whoever loves wisdom makes his father rejoice, but a companion of harlots wastes wealth. So here we come back to, we've seen numerous proverbs like this of how the way that a child lives and how they function and they operate ends up having a real bearing upon the parent who raised them, 
who's connected to them, whether they can feel proud of them and be blessed and, and end up having an enjoyable experience to watch their child doing really well, or compared to the contrast where they see their child living in a way that's unhealthy and foolish and rebellious and so forth and all the grief and the heartache and pain and sorrow. We've seen numerous Proverbs kind of conveying this idea. So here, verse 3 speaks of really just generally the difference between, we might say, living well, living by wisdom, and living, we might say in contrast, wastefully, like a selfish fool. And, and so really, those are really, if you boil down, two ways to live. We can live well by wisdom, or we can live wastefully by living like a selfish fool. And he pictures both here, and how that has a direct impact, he says, living well or living wastefully on the parents who've raised us or who may still be in the process of raising us, maybe if it's a teenager or you know, a young adult child who's still living at home that has a huge impact upon the parents, and can either bring great joy, he says, to the father, where a son living and loving wisdom makes his father rejoice, and he's proud, and he's blessed to say, that's my son, and I'm just such a blessing to have him as a son, and brings great joy to my heart, as compared to the other side of that, if the son is living wastefully and foolish and selfish ways, it can make a father very sorrowful and have a lot of regret or maybe even embarrassment to some degree. And the one who lives well, notice he says, here's how to live well, is to be someone who loves wisdom. And notice that, loves, key word, wisdom. And here's what I mean by that. There's a difference between loving knowledge and loving education and loving wisdom. Some people love education, and so they pursue education, and they get very educated, then they're super smart. And they're very educated, and they love education. They go to school, and it almost becomes like a, you know, a, a recreational hobby their whole life. They go back for more education, and they love education. God bless them. That is not me. <laughs> and, and they, they want to study and take more tests and write more papers and, and, and just get more degree. And some people love education. Well, you can be a very educated fool. And there are people who are very well educated, and yet they live very, like the second half of the verse, foolishly, where they can have someone who's just a companion of harlots living wastefully and wasting money and living just like a selfish fool. So the key here, he says, to living well is actually not just loving education, but loving wisdom. That is loving how to learn how to live well by other wise people, by God's wisdom from his word, according to God's design and God's purpose. He says that will be a life that ends up being lived well that brings pleasure to the father because they'll be proud to observe, man, even if my son's not that educated, but boy, he lives well. Man, he lives well. I'm just so proud to see him living well. And, and him living well is allowing me not to be stressed out and to waste all my money bailing him out, right? And it's a pleasure to the father where he says the other side of that is living wastefully, foolishly spending money, becoming a companion of harlots, and again, that the idea there is evident, those living in unrestrained sexual sin, kind of just the party life, the picture. It's kind of like the prodigal son from the New Testament, right? Wanting his inheritance, then he takes his father's inheritance money, and he just goes and squanders it on you know, prostitutes and just foolish party living and so forth, and just squandering and living wastefully. And he says that person living wastefully is like a fool. And of course, that just causes heartache and embarrassment uh, to the parents who have to deal with such a thing. And I can't help but to wonder if the companion of harlots isn't just wasting 
his wealth or the idea of maybe the his there refers back to his father wasting his father's wealth because maybe they inherit some of the father's wealth and then they just use it really wastefully instead of something good and decent. Verse 4, the king, he says, establishes the land by justice, but he who receives bribes overthrows it. So the picture here is when a leader operates in just ways, which means doing things that are moral, doing things that are right, without being persuaded to compromise or make concessions on that which is moral and just and appropriate. He says when, when a king operates like that and he holds boundaries morally, that brings stability, it establishes the land, it causes the environment under the rulership of that leader to be something that becomes very stable, it becomes a stable environment, and, and, and it becomes something very good, where in contrast, he says, if someone's doing the opposite to that, then he says he who receives bribes will just overthrow it. And the picture there is when leaders are willing to put personal gain or enrichment for what may give them some gain in some way in their life over what really is just and right or moral, then that completely destabilizes everything. When somebody operates in a way where they can be bought, they can be bribed, Right, whether it's a judge or a ruler or a leader in any capacity, civilly, morally, business, spiritually, if there's someone who can be bought or bribed in some way, then they overthrow stability because it causes things to become unstable. And why? Because people learn there's a system that can be worked here. And so everybody just buys into the unhealthy thing. We're going to see this same idea later on about somebody who's a leader that listens to lies encourages everybody else to just be a liar because they realize, hey, that's what works. Uh, and so they become corrupt just like the corrupt leader over top of them. Again, everything always comes from the top down. It can be good things, bringing stability, or from the top down, pollution can just trickle downstream and kind of pollute everybody else and destabilize those involved. Verse 5, a man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. Now, again, another proverb about flattery. And remember, flattery is not, not encouragement. It's not paying a sincere, kind compliment. Nothing wrong with that. I think sometimes maybe we should grow and do a little better in that area. We're really good at critiquing one another. We're very good at criticizing one another. Whenever I do premarital counseling, or postmarital, premarital counseling for people who never counseled, a lot of times I find myself addressing that subject. Look, it's very easy to criticize our spouse, right? Because you live with them. There's lots of ammunition, lots of evidence you have all the time. And so sometimes it's very difficult to actually learn how to be complimentary to people and build people up and say kind things. That's not what this is referring to. Flattery is not compliments or encouragement in a genuine way. Flattery, by definition, is insincere compliments used to gain advantage or to acquire something for your favor that you want with a person. So it's basically, again, kind of kissing up, buttering up, you know, saying things to kind of if you would disarm somebody or get them to bring their guard down a little bit by saying nice things to them so that you can manipulate them by lowering their emotional or mental defenses to gain wrong access. And he says here, wise people need to understand flattery happens and not be naive about it. And to recognize at times, if somebody is being overly complimentary, to step back and say, I'm really not that great of a person. 
I don't know if all this is sincere because, I mean, I know, I know myself, and you think way more of me than anybody I've ever known does. And so he says, just be aware that flattery is a real thing, and it can happen. Uh, someone flattering their neighbor, he says, typically, look what he says, they're spreading a net for the feet. They're just laying a trap to kind of somehow manipulate and, and get something. So he's saying, beware, don't let yourself get trapped and snared by flattery. Hey, great reminder as well. If you're in the dating process, that applies there as well. Verse 6, by transgression, an evil man is snared, but the righteous, contrasts, sings and rejoices. So here he draws another contrast between those who sin and just disregard God's word and God's ways. And he says those who do that, those who sin and just are disregarding God's will, they'll find themselves ensnared. They'll find themselves trapped in struggles. That's part of living as an evil man and transgressing. You'll end up finding yourself sin equals struggles. Sin equals slavery. Sin equals snares. That's just the way it works. Jesus spoke of the same principle in the New Testament. Jesus said, he who sins, the idea is continuously, becomes a slave to sin. We never want to forget, sin isn't just something wrong. Sin is something that's dangerous because it has an enslaving effect upon our lives. And so he says here, by transgression, the evil man ends up becoming snared in his pathway of transgression, but the righteous, those who choose to live right and do right, they will be rewarded with the fruit. Instead of being entangled in things, they're liberated so they can sing and rejoice. The idea is they can enjoy life. And to live a righteous life just allows us to have the fruit of an enjoyment in our life and able to experience the joy of having freedom and not being trapped in something we don't want to be. Verse 8, scoffers set a city aflame. But wise men turn away wrath. Now, uh, verse 7 here seems to describe how, again, uh, those uh, here who are, are you know, living in a, in a way, excuse me, verse uh, 8 there, the contrast of, of really a, we might say, a problem starter versus the contrast of kind of a problem solver we begin to see in verse 8. Scoffers, they set the city aflame. The idea is they... they they, they throw fuel on the fire, and they start fires, and they start problems that bring destruction. They're problem starters versus the opposite. Wise people, they look for ways to turn away wrath, to subdue wrath, and to do what they can to try and diminish the fire. So some people, the picture is here in verse 8, the first part of it, some people, by running their mouths in unhelpful ways scoffing, talking too much, just you know, verbally running their mouths in unhealthy and unhelpful ways, they foolishly start fires among people. And they set the city ablaze, and they create a major firestorm, which causes harm, where others, he says, verse 8, who seek to be wise, they seek to, look, take the firestorm and, and turn away the fires of wrath. They try and do the opposite. They realize by strategically interacting with people, there are ways at times to try and put the fires out and to settle the issues emotionally and relationally and try and turn away wrath rather than make wrath escalate. And so the difference between being a problem starter and being someone who really sincerely just tries in wisdom to be a problem solver, the latter 
is the better thing to do that's wise, God says. Verse 9, if a wise man contends with a foolish man, and here the idea is the wise man's trying to contend with a foolish man to, to help them to see the error of their way, he says whether that fool rages, that is they get incredibly angry and they get upset and, and defensive and frustrated, or whether the fool laughs and just kind of mocks it and scoffs it off, he says still in the end there will be no peace. And the picture here seems to be that unfortunately some foolish people due to kind of just being you know, immature in their ways are, we might say, very hard to pacify relationally. And that's what he's describing here, the fool. Someone who, when you try and contend with them in their foolishness, whether they get incredibly angry and blow up in anger or whether they kind of just laugh it off and have kind of like, you know, an opposite, polar opposite response, at the end of the day, their foolish immaturity becomes a problem because they're just impossible to pacify. And there's just no way of finding peace with them. And this is kind of the, the picture here. He says, whether they laugh or whether they get incredibly angry and rage, there's still no peace at the end, whether they're getting more angry or not taking things seriously. And, and the picture is they're just never at peace with themselves, and they just struggle with just being at peace with other people. I mean, some people, by nature, they, they, that's a real struggle with them. It's almost as if they are so you know, unsettled within themselves and they're not comfortable enough with themselves that sometimes the downside of that is they just never learn how to be at peace with anybody else. Their life is just constant conflict, and everything has to turn into a conflict, and, and he says this is just a very immature struggle of foolishness, and sometimes as wise as you can be, you're going to find sometimes that's going to still be the struggle with certain people that there's always just going to be still that lack of peace because, again, the Bible tells us in, in the New Testament, as much as it's possible with you, live peaceably with all men. Notice the, the, the quantifier, as much as it's possible with you. Do your best to live peaceably. But the idea is sometimes the reality is you can do everything as wisely as you can to try and be peaceable with someone, but if they're just constantly still agitated and don't want peace... You may never get relational peace because there's no offer of peace, of really no heart and ability to, 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 in a sense, enter into peace on the other, and it takes both parties in relationship to have peace. Verse 10, the bloodthirsty hate the blameless, but the upright seek his well-being. So when someone seeks to live blameless, that refers to someone who has integrity, that's being ethical, they keep moral standards. And know this, if you want to be someone who's blameless and you try and have integrity and you try and live with moral standards, the Bible is telling you here wisdom should make you recognize you're going to have both, some enemies, and you're also going to find people that loyally support you in that process. So he says to the blameless, the bloodthirsty, hate them. <laughs> So if you try and live blamelessly, bloodthirsty people who hate what righteous people represent, they're going to want to cruelly devour and destroy you because they just hate the fact of what you represent, that you're blameless, that you're moral. And because they're bloodthirsty, they hate it. Where in contrast, he says, and you're going to have some enemies, but also the wonderful thing is those who are upright, they're going to seek your well-being. 
They're going to be those who stand beside you and are trying to encourage you in the process. Godly moral people will seek to support and encourage you if you seek to do what's right. And again, the picture there is just a reminder that we often say you can't please everybody, right? And oftentimes you can tell a lot about a person not just by who their friends are, but by who their enemies are. I mean, think of how this very fittingly describes Jesus in a sense, right? Jesus was the epitome of being blameless. He was more than blameless. He was literally guiltless, sinless, completely innocent. And is it not true that Jesus had both enemies and people who loved him and wanted his well-being to come to pass? Those who were, in a sense, wicked, despised, and hated Jesus because of his righteousness and those who are upright and want to be righteous, they wanted the well-being and what was best for the Lord. And the same is going to be true in our lives. And wisdom just kind of has to come to terms with that. Hey, if I'm going to live upright, I'm not going to have everybody's approval. We're going to see in a proverb not too long from now, the fear of man is a snare. And the idea is you can't please everybody. You can't be a people pleaser. Verse 13, the poor man and the oppressor, or excuse me, uh, verse 11, the fool vents all his feelings, but a wise man holds them back. Now, take notice there. A fool, the Bible says, vents all his feelings. It's how feelings are being handled here. But he says the wise man holds them back, seeks to exercise restraint. Now, please take notice that God's word clearly indicates every human being has a range of emotions. That's what makes us human. If you think you don't have emotions or shouldn't have emotions, you might want to reconsider how much you've lost your humanity because we were created in the image and likeness of God. God has emotions. God has compassion. God experiences sadness. God experiences anger. God, ex God experiences a range of emotions. And so we were created in the image and likeness of God as his people and part of being human is to have emotions and feelings as we experience things in this life. Whether they're right emotions or wrong emotions or right feelings or wrong feelings, the bottom line is it's appropriate to have a degree of feelings. We're not called to be stoic robots. We're not machines. We're human beings. We have humanity. Quite honestly, we should probably have more emotions and more feelings than hard-hearted, cold-hearted people in the world whose hearts are like stone, and we're supposed to have hearts of flesh, the Bible says, right? So what the Bible says to us here is a range of emotions as we go through different life experiences, things happen, you know, hardships and disappointments and losses and you know misunderstandings and offenses and hurts and conflicts emotions and feelings are a part of everyday experience the important thing the bible says is our stewardship with how we manage our emotions and that we have a stewardship and a responsibility before god to be wise rather than foolish and he says we can be foolish with our emotions verse 11 the fool vents all his feelings in other words, the Bible says that a foolish pattern to get into is when a person feels that they have to express everything that they're feeling, or they have to express and vent everything they're always thinking. Just because I have certain thoughts or I feel certain ways does not mean I always need to vent that. It doesn't mean I'm always supposed to let that out. Sometimes that can be a very foolish 
undisciplined pattern that we fall into by always expressing and letting out and feeling we always need an outlet to vent our feelings all the time. He says the fool vents all his feelings. But he says, look what he says, the wise man holds them back. Now, that doesn't mean the wise person lives like they have no emotions and never shows any emotions. That, that's, that's not appropriate and that's unhealthy. The picture there is in contrast to venting all your feelings all the time. The contrast is the wise person learns how to use a degree of restraint. They realize that there's a time that maybe I should say what's on my mind, and there's also times where maybe I don't need to say what's on my mind. There's a time where maybe I do need to express my feelings, and then there are also times in wisdom when I realize, you know, in this setting or for this maybe I don't need to vent and express my feelings. And they learn to use a degree of self-control and discipline to regulate themselves, and they, they value the exercise of restraint, and, and they just manage their emotions wisely. So again, God gives this good insight, really. We have all lived through verse 11 on both sides of it, right? And it's a, it's a constant learning process for all of us and all the ranges of emotions from sadness to depression to anger to the many different human emotions that we all wrestle with. Verse 12, if a ruler pays attention to lies, all his servants become wicked. Now, notice I referred to this earlier. Here he spoke of how a ruler, a leader again, paying attention to lies. So a leader has to be careful, the Bible says, with what they permit and what they participate in. Because if they're not careful what they permit and what they themselves participate in, then the downside to that is they can end up, if they're being persuaded by lies and they're tolerating wrong things like listening to lying or they're indulging wrong behavior, then what they're going to do is they're going to set a wrong precedent and everybody else under them and around them is basically going to just begin to follow their example and the pathway that they've set as a leader. So if people see a leader buying into lies and listening to lies and participating, and, and, and he says, what's going to happen is, is people are going to say, oh, that's how the system works around here. <laughs> so the people under that leader are going to just start lying too. They're going to start being dishonest because a bad precedent was set. And if a bad precedent is set in leadership, then others are going to follow that same pattern. If a ruler pays attention to lies, all his servants are going to become wicked. They're just going to follow suit. And look, I think that same thing applies as well. We should be very wise in regards to parenting. If as a parent, we indicate to our children to some degree, and they catch us and realize that it's justified for us to lie, then guess what our children are going to be prone to do? Well, you set the precedent. You lied, Dad. Or you lie, Mom. <laughs> or I notice how you're being dishonest. And so then they just embrace and they follow those same patterns. So again, very important that we don't set a wrong precedent because people will tend to become like whatever seems to be allowed. Have you ever noticed that? That's just human nature. And if they realize certain things are allowed, then they just tend to gravitate towards what's permitted and what's allowed or what's practiced and rewarded. And if people realize, oh, lying is practiced or lying seems to get rewarded or cheating or whatever, pick your poison there, then people will gravitate towards that. And so very important to realize that, uh, that we keep ourselves in check and be careful of that. Verse 13, the poor man and the oppressor have this in common. And think of the contrast there, the poor man, those who are in a lowly state, they have a lack of resources, no real influence. 
The oppressor speaks of the one who's powerful enough to control and oppress others. So they have great resources and they have great influence. But notice, two completely diverse people groups. But God says they do have this one thing in common. And that is the Lord gives light to the eyes of both. So despite the vast differences in one's living status, they do have one thing in common. They're both equally valuable to God and they're both equally accountable to God. And he says, because God gives light to the eyes of both. And the picture there is despite their social status, whether they have lack and they have abject poverty and nothing, or whether they have great wealth and power and influence to where they can oppress and dominate and control people, at the end of the day, God gives equal light of revelation regarding spiritual truth to all mankind. And he holds them all equally accountable to God for what they choose to do in response to God himself. Verse 14, the king who judges the poor with truth, his throne will be established forever. So when a civil ruler uses true and fair standards, he says, judging the poor with truth, using good standards as he relates to those who are struggling and less fortunate, he says that will contribute to the prolonging of one's rulership because people will respect a leader like that someone who's willing to be fair and just with those who are in less fortunate conditions. Verse 15, here's another great parenting verse that comes to us. The rod and rebuke give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame. And this time we come back to shame, not to his father, but shame to his mother. And so here, again, God brings us back to this important role of the ministry of parenting, and that's what it is. It's a ministry of parenting. It is indeed the hardest job that exists on this entire planet, in my personal conviction. Uh, And he says here, an undisciplined child that that really is somewhat allowed to be left to themselves will end up, look what he says, verse 15, bringing shame to their mother, to their father. Again, we've seen other Proverbs. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of correction will drive it far from them. The natural inclination, because we're all born from the same line of Adam's seed, is that we are sinners, we're rebels, we naturally gravitate towards doing what's wrong, and if a parent does not realize that needs to be regulated and, and, and governed and something that is corrected and channeled in a child to help drive that out of them, that parent is basically setting that child up for failure, God says. So he says, if that child is just left to themselves to do what they want, the idea is given a little bit too much permissibility to make their own choices, to do as they please, he says, that undisciplined child who then becomes an unruly child is really, look what the Bible's saying, a poor reflection on their parents. Oh, this child is so unruly. They're so out of control. What is wrong with this child? Their parents. Because they're a human being like every other child. Oh, my child just has a strong will. I said that every time one of my children were born. What parent hasn't said that? I have a strong-willed child. Who doesn't have a strong-willed child? <laughs> right? We all have strong-willed children. We were strong-willed children. And a lot of times it just becomes a rationalization or a justification for us as parents not really buckling down with a concerted effort and realizing, look, God didn't make a mistake when he gave you that child. It's not like God went, hmm, boy, that 
probably should have given him to that set of parents. God doesn't make mistakes. God knew who he was giving to us. He was giving to us a child that it became our stewardship and responsibility to raise them, to guide them, to train them. And a part of that process, he describes the balanced need of correction, both with the rod and the rebuke. The rod speaks of painful consequence, spanking, some form of painful consequence. If beyond spanking, something else that's going to bring a degree of painful consequence into their life if spanking is beyond those years at that point in time some kind of painful correction and then the rebuke of course shows that it's not just spanking or painful correction but also at times communicating and and reproving and speaking into their life and at times challenging them verbally and and correcting again so that we're not just with authority like a judge or a police officer just regulating our child's behavior Because if all we ever do as parents is use our power and our authority and our fear and our intimidation to regulate their behavior, again, the Bible, you know, implies this principle idea, and we've, you know, seen it in a lot of parenting discussions, that rules without relationship just breeds rebellion. And so if all we want to do is have hard rules and we're going to, we're going to beat them every time they step out of line and I'm going to keep, and, 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 and that's our whole mantra as parents. And we never reprove and communicate and point out and teach and instruct and help them learn and grow. We're really doing a great disservice because what we're doing is we're teaching our children behavior modification. And behavior modification is what happens in prisons. Because when people can't self-regulate in society, they go into prisons to serve a punishment or a term, however long that may be, and for a season, they are regulated by concrete walls and bars and prison guards. They have no freedoms. Oh, I'm doing great since I've been in here, chaplain. I'm just doing so great. I don't want the drugs no more. And I, well, right. You don't have access to anything anymore. (laughs) I hope that you're sincere long time, but we're never really going to know, right, until the restraints are removed off of your life. Until you're outside of the prison, we're never going to know if really you've had a genuine spiritual conversion or you genuinely have had a heart change because when you have freedom and access again, then we're going to know if you really want to change or if you were just doing behavior modification because you were being controlled, right? Same thing with kids. They need the rod, but they also need the rebuke. We need to speak into their lives. We need to address their heart attitude. What were you thinking when you did that? We need to challenge their heart and and speak into their life in a way that's somewhat loving, but at the same time very straightforward to help them reason out the error of their way so that there's that helpful degree where we don't allow them to keep erring off course And here the Bible is just cautioning us, saying that rod and the rebuke, that's what gives wisdom to the child to learn how to live well, to learn how to live properly. That's how the child develops wisdom so that then when they're out from under our regulatory control, they can make their own good, wise decisions. That's what we're trying to teach them, to bring them to a place where they can wisely start making choices independent of us and live well when they have that freedom and independence to greater and greater degrees. So The error of parents that can happen is allowing their children to just do a little bit too much as they please and being too permissive and not restricting their behavior through corrective acts or disciplinary actions. And look, we all know, does it not, that happens from toddler all the way through teenager. It's just a long-term process. From toddler through teenager until they launch into adult independence, 
our job is to be careful that we don't left our, leave our child to themselves because then what's going to happen if we don't have the courage as a parent or we don't have the commitment level as a parent to do what's necessary to keep correcting and training and, and guiding, then he says that child's going to gravitate further into evil and error and we, in a sense, push them down that road. And we, in a sense, didn't drive out of their lives unhealthy things, and then we're going to find later on there's shame and regret to us as the parent because, in a sense, we forfeited the ministry and opportunity in the child raising. Verse 16, when the wicked are multiplied, more and more evil people, then transgression increases, but the righteous will see their fall. So notice the Bible indicates that the more wicked people there are in a society, Sadly, the more wicked things will transpire, the idea is evil will just progress. The more there are more wicked people in society, we're going to find moral boundaries being crossed more and more because as wicked people are multiplied, then transgression will just increase. And a transgression, remember, is here's the line and you just step over it anyway. And so he says the more society is able to become more and more wicked, then society is going to find itself going into darker and more deviant behaviors as wickedness and transgression just increases and multiplies. You know, thanks be to God that though we might do what we can to be salt and light and restrain evil, that one day we know as the righteous, at least we will see the fall. That is, ultimately God will judge wickedness to those who choose that path. Verse 17, he comes back to again, correct your son and he'll give you rest. Yes, he will give delight to your soul. So notice, parental correction is not just only, as we just referred to in verse 15, it's not only about doing the right thing for our child's welfare, but here, a very important verse, I took this to heart very seriously, verse 17, in raising our daughters, it's also for the parents' benefit. <laughs> because you see what he's saying there, verse 17? Correct your child, and they'll give you rest and delight to your soul. So what's the reward of good parenting and correcting our children consistently and properly? God says it will allow you as a parent to have some rest, some peace, some ability to, he says, have delight in your soul. That is where you actually can enjoy your children and you actually like your children. Nothing makes me sadder. I've heard parents say right out loud and other times I can just almost tell by observation, they love their children, but they don't like their children, right? Because their children are unruly or rebellious or disrespectful, and they love them. That love's unconditional. Oh, I lo and they, they love their child, but you can either sense it in their countenance or you can tell by just watching. They love their child, but they don't like them because their child gives them no rest no peace, right? Their child just gives them constant turmoil and agitation. And so God is saying proactively, if there's still opportunity in the parenting process, God says, look, that parenting thing, it's not just for them alone. It's for you too, because they're going to be your child long-term. And you want to be able to enjoy the rest and the peace of, man, so nice to get some of the fruit that my child's doing well, and I, I can have some peace of mind and I'm not in turmoil and agitation and angry at them and frustrated and grieved because of, you know, the misery of bad decisions. And so, again, it works both ways. God gives us great incentive as parents for our own benefit and welfare mentally and emotionally as well. Verse 18, where there is no revelation, the idea there in the Hebrew is prophetic revelation, the giving forth 
the revealing of God's truth. People cast off restraint, but happy is he who keeps the law. So the idea here is when there's no sharing of the word of God, no revelation of spiritual truth coming forth, when that's not transpiring, then there's a lack of a necessary restraining power that the word of God truly does bring, right? Remember Psalm 119, the psalmist says, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So God's word has a powerful restraining influence. And God says, when there is no revelation coming forth in a family, in a society, God forbid, in a church, when there's no revelation of the word of the Lord, the word of God coming forth, then that restraining power of the word of God in a healthy way that helps people by its light and its truth to, in a sense, refrain a little bit more from entering into error and just casting off restraint and living in the flesh, he says when that's not happening, people much more easily cast off restraint and they indulge sin. So the value of giving forth the word of God is it has a restraining influence, and he says it's foolish to make the mistake when there's a neglect of the revelation of God's word and, and the word of the Lord's not coming forth and God's not giving a word to his people. You know, you read the Old Testament times when people were doing what was right in their own eyes, when prophets weren't speaking and, and time periods where, you know, God's people weren't hearing from the Lord and how the people would just cast off restraint in society. You know, it amazes me that to this day still, that the majority of so many people cannot see the tremendous travesty we have brought on the moral condition in our society by removing the word of God from the public sector, from our schools, and, and, and thinking somehow that is advantageous. All that's done is caused everybody to cast off restraint of their sinful inclinations and to go further in unhealthy ways because God's word has that restraining influence to keep people from doing evil things. And that's why he says, happy is he who keeps the law. That is the law of the Lord. Those who have regulations morally and spiritually, that's what brings true happiness. That's what brings an enjoyable life when you actually live within healthy boundaries that God intends for us to protect us. A servant will not be corrected by mere words, verse 19, for though he understands, he will not respond. So notice, will not be corrected by mere words. So he's describing here how some people require more than just verbal correction alone. It's just the nature of some people. Some people, by just mere words, verbal correction is not enough for them. They need something that is a little bit more severe in its punishment. Some people, just mere words, challenging them, correcting them verbally is not enough. Sometimes they need a more severe, painful consequence. Something that brings a little bit more severity is what's necessary to get them to change, to get them to turn and to do the right thing. He says, though he understands, he won't respond. Again, that's the problem. They don't want to respond. They hear the words, but they don't want to respond to them. So sometimes it takes severity to get people to respond properly. Verse 20, do you see a man hasty in his words, speaking quickly without thinking? The idea is there's more hope for a fool than for him. So this cautions of the foolishness of entering into that life pattern of just being hasty with our words. And boy, we have all played the fool in this area, have we not from time to time, speaking too quickly, speaking too freely, speaking too thoughtlessly, if we would, you know, not thinking before we say things and how that can destroy good opportunities in our lives. 
how hasty words have gotten us real problems and foolish actions at times. Verse 21, he who pampers his servant from childhood will have him as a son in the end. Now, the idea there of pampering speaks of pampering, spoiling, if you would. And again, the closest thing we would have to what we call a servant-master relationship in our culture today would be like employee-employer relationships, like our vocational uh, dynamics, an employee with their employer. And this seems to kind of convey that idea to the employer, to the worker, or to the employee. If you pamper your worker a little bit too much from the early days, he says, you're going to end up having them not as a servant, but as a son in the end. And the picture there is sometimes overly pampering a worker can break down proper appreciation of the true relationship that should exist there because they may then lose respect and they forget their place as a worker and as a servant, and they start having unrealistic expectations and expect to be entitled to things just like they were a son, the ideas. So God's kind of cautioning here the importance of using wisdom to keep properly defined boundaries, we might say, within the workplace, because it really is, I think, a rare employee who's able to have close personal relationship with a supervisor and still maintain the right perspective and not to start get the waters muddied a little bit because they get too chum-chummy with the boss a little bit and then they, they think they deserve preferential treatment when the reality is they don't, right? They're a worker still. And so God here kind of cautions of just you know being careful. Nice to be friends in the workplace, but at the end of the day, that's not a social hour. That's, it's a workplace. And so God just kind of cautions to be careful in finding balance and boundaries. An angry man, verse 22, stirs up strife, and a furious man abounds in transgression. So there's the caution again of venting one's feelings when it comes to anger or rage. And he says if somebody doesn't keep their anger in check and channel their anger properly, angry and bitter people have a tendency to stir up strife. They have a tendency when they're angry and bitter to be kind of you know, people who are always starting quarrels. A lot of times that's the root of people who cause a lot of strife. They're just angry and embittered inside, and it's undealt with. And if people are furious, that is, they got a, a you know, kind of temper problem, he says, they end up a lot of times transgressing and doing really harmful and destructive things, you know, verbally abusive, God forbid, even physically abusive, where Ephesians 4 says, be angry, but sin not. And so, again, we've got to learn to channel our anger properly. Verse 23, a man's pride will bring him low, and we've all known that before, but the humble in spirit will retain honor. So again, that repetitious theme of the, the foolishness of pride and how pride so often is what brings us down. It's what causes us to fall, causes us to lose opportunities, to lose respect, where humility, he says, is the key to retaining honor and respect, and it protects us from behaving wrongly by having a humble spirit, we stay submissive in our attitude and we retain honor. Whoever is a partner with a thief hates his own life. So if you had intentions to rob a bank tomorrow, reconsider, right? Whoever is a partner with a thief really hates his own life. You're not going to gain anything but problems. He swears to tell the truth but reveals nothing. The idea is, is once you start stealing, then you just got to start lying on top of it to keep covering up the process going so one sin 
leads to another. Verse 25, the fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts the Lord shall be saved. So here's that caution, the fear of man, which describes really the fear of people's acceptance, the fear of of wanting people's approval or not having people's approval or the fear of what they may do to us. The Bible says that kind of struggle of fearing people is always a trap. It will always ensnare us. If we find ourselves chronically struggling and giving into the fear of being a people pleaser and always wanting to be approved or always needing to have acceptance or always fearful of, well, you know, what might they do to me or what, how are they going to respond to me? And if we get into that pattern, he says, look, that's going to be a major trap in your life. You're going to find yourself ensnared in all kinds of wrong behavior Because the bottom line is, no matter what you do in life, as I alluded to earlier, you're never going to please everyone. It's impossible. Jesus even said, beware when all men speak well of you. If everybody speaks well of you, Jesus said, you better beware. Maybe you're a people pleaser. So the fear of a person, the fear of people, being a people pleaser, he says, that's always a trap. What's the safe thing to do? He says, just trust the Lord. Just trust the Lord. I, I want your acceptance. I want your approval. I want to know that I'm doing what's right before you. And he says, that's the key to resolving that problem. Just trust the Lord. That's the safe way to live. It will protect us many times from making wrong decisions just because we're trying to please a person in fear. Many seek the ruler's favor. The idea is looking to human help. But justice for man comes from the Lord. So the natural default as human beings as we go to some human being as their influence or their ability to help us we go and seek their assistance but he says the real way to have problems solved and get justice in a situation is to go to the lord go to the real ruler the true king of kings he has much more ability to help than any human being giving you assistance you might need and then verse 27 he concludes saying and an unjust man is an abomination to the righteous and he who is upright in the way is an abomination to the wicked. Now, notice the contrast there. He describes how there's often mutual disdain for one another among the righteous and among the wicked. And that's just a natural reality. He says, an unjust man, somebody who's wicked, they become an abomination. They disgust the righteous person. Where in contrast, he says, When someone is upright in their ways, they become an abomination and a disgust to the person who wants to be wicked. And what God's reminding us here is that wisdom recognizes that's just called light versus darkness. And that it's just a reality that there is a real spiritual battle. And many a times it reveals what side of the battle we really stand upon. And so rather than let it rattle us, Sometimes it's a way to confirm to us where we're really at, what things disgust us, and what people are disgusted by us in the way that we're living. And sometimes that's a real revelation for us. Let's stay.